Hi everyone, welcome back. On today's show, I sit down with Brennan to walk through his career path. While our show tends to lead itself towards helping current engineering students, we also hope that it helps young engineers in a position they want to pivot from. How exactly that pivot is done, where exactly to pivot towards, are tough questions. But stories like Brennan help you understand one potential way to execute the pivot. Brennan Timrak has a master's and bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Michigan Tech. He is from a small town in northern Idaho, but through his master's work was able to travel to Senegal to participate in the Master's International Peace Corps program. Following his master's, he worked at General Motors as a thermal calibration engineer. Recently, Brennan and his wife moved to West Michigan, where he now does product development for Bissell Home Care. Brennan, welcome back to EYC. All right, we're back with the next episode of EYC. Looking forward to this one for a long time. I teased it on the last episode, but we're finally, finally getting to the infamous episode with Brennan. You might have it's, wondered, why did it take us 23 episodes? It took a I while. Know. I don't know. It took a while. I think there's valid reasons why. Been a lot happening in the past yeah. year. I didn't, you know, I couldn't share the story before it was complete. There you go. Well, is it, is it, it ever complete? It, it's not. It's not complete. That's a lie. Let's start it off, noobs. Get, bring us back to the young little adolescent child in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. Yeah, man. So anybody who doesn't know, uh, we talk, I mean, we talk a lot about Michigan, Michigan Tech School, working in Michigan. I'm not from Michigan at all. Uh, I grew up in North Idaho, so way out west, small town, more people at college I went to within like my town, maybe the whole county. I don't know. So small town stuff. I grew up like super rural. And as a little kid, like not too much going on in terms of like, here's what an engineer does. But I like taking things apart. I did not put them back together at all, though. I think I, I think my uncle once like gave me like a moped. I was really I was pretty young. They had, like an old one that didn't run or just need a battery or something. I think I just took it apart. It's probably still in parts uh, at, uh, at my dad's house out there because I was like, what do these things do? What's part of them? So that was me. I wasn't the person who took things apart and put them back together. I just took them apart, and that's how they landed. Nice. Yeah, but we did like building stuff. So, so I think that was the other thing was like you know we'd get we'd get like Connects toys were a big part of childhood, building out those roller coasters and things, which was a ton of fun. And so I was like, this is this is pretty cool. Um, and and I've had to think about this lately in terms of like what actually led me to be like, let's do engineering. Because um, I think I decided at just at one point in high school, like. I think that's what I want to do. Uh, engineering seems 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 like it. Uh, my sister, I mean, Caitlin, we've had her on the show. She went to school for engineering in a totally different area than than me. Hers in environmental there, but I like things and machines and things moving. And then finally, in my senior year of high school, uh, we started a first robotics program at our school. And so I'd already decided I was going to school because it was it was senior year. So I decided I was going to go study mechanical engineering, whatever that meant, go to Michigan Tech, um, going there specifically because it was a small school, uh, pretty rural in and of itself. And I got a pretty good in-state tuition deal to go there because my dad went there for forestry, not engineering uh, at all. My family was, was big in the forest realm. So that's kind of get, getting to robotics was a pretty good like first step because I was like the first time was like, you're on a team, you're building something like how does this all work? Because um, in in high school, like at least definitely in the rural schools, like there's a lot of opportunity for welding classes, drafting classes. So I had a lot of that, which was which was fun and things I liked. And now was kind of like putting it together on like a project. Were there any other options you were looking at or was it, it pretty much just always mechanical engineering? Mm, I think it was kind of always that I'm trying to remember. I think at one point I might have been interested in like botany and like biology type stuff. 
Uh, if I'm thinking back, like growing up, like we did a lot of gardening and things. We didn't have necessarily like a farm. We had a few acres, a few animals, but like a big garden. And so I was like kind of interested in that area in plant science a little bit. But I don't think I ever seriously considered that because everything I remember was like, what are these engineering schools that I might want to go to hmm. and go down that path? Uh, well, a big part of it for me actually was a big interest in renewable energy. So I knew it must have even been early high school. Like I was super interested in like renewable energy and solar power and wind power. I think I remember like one point I would like clip articles out of like the local newspaper. Of, like here's anything related to like renewable energy, like some like gas generation, like renewable gas generation or whatever. Like I was super into that. And so wanted to wanted to go down that route and figured like engineering seems like the route to go down. I think I've discovered later is what I, I like. I didn't actually learn the area of engineering I should have to actually do what I wanted to do, but I didn't know that at the time. If you at any point in high school ask your friends to come over to look at your paper cut your, your paper cutouts of wind energy articles, yeah, I would say engineer. I would I would say don't worry about it. You just go engineering track. Okay. Okay, in all fairness, I didn't invite anybody over to look at them. They were just for me. I never went back and looked at them. I was just like... More fitting for an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> My friends don't come over. I don't have them. I have one friend, and he said he wasn't interested. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. That's funny, though. That is that is funny. Okay. So, it's... It, I don't know. I guess it's also interesting because so I know, I mean, I obviously know a lot about you and your parents are very, very forestry heavy. I mean, you, both your mom and your dad are heavily involved in not engineering, I guess, for the relevance of this d- discussion. So interesting to see how you got those kind of like, I guess, cues from other things. So, okay. So you, you had decided on Michigan Tech, though, even before doing first robotics. Um, and so you, yeah, I guess, so what's it like going many states over for college? Yeah, I don't... <sighs> I can't remember what I was feeling when it happened because um, I only visited like I never did a tour of campus. I never like saw wow. what it was like. I had just literally like looked up online and, and like looked at it a little bit. I knew my dad went there. So like his um, his family, he grew up in Michigan, not in the UP, not near Michigan Tech, but but lower Michigan. So we would like drive through there in the summer sometime and like stop and see campus. But like I was the last time that it happened was probably early high school. So not actually close to when I was making a decision. Uh, so I kind of just like did it on a little bit of a whim, I guess, of being like, they have they have a good engineering program. Like, I know, I know that at least I've heard that. And I think it being a smaller school that was very much outside um, for, for those of us, I know, I mean, we've obviously had many Michigan Tech grads on the show because of the network we have. But if you're listening and you've never been there, it's a very rural a well-known university it's in a very rural setting and you only need to drive like three minutes and you're out in the woods so that was i think a big a big draw too for me um at the time at least and i mean i still love that about it but yeah it was like get in the car we're loading up we're doing a 30-hour road trip across the country um full of my stuff and we're just gonna go and show up and see how it goes so i i had no idea what i was doing i think i decided i wanted to um like, I didn't necessarily want to go to a school in state. I didn't necessarily feel the need to do that. And so I was like, let's go try something new. Uh, maybe try and reinvent myself a little bit. Uh, I don't think that worked out. I was a pretty, like, dorky, nerdy kid in high school. And I think that definitely carried over into college for people that knew me. So I, I failed at that completely. But it was good. It was uh, it was everything I, I think I had hoped it would be at the time, but not necessarily knowing what I was getting into. But definitely different. I mean, it's different when when you go somewhere where you're far from home, where you have to plan out your vacations of you're going to fly somewhere. 
my family is spread out all across the U.S., so it's like I'm flying to Idaho or Arizona or Louisiana for holidays, uh, getting rides downstate, like another thing, going to school in Michigan, uh, Michigan Tech, like you can take the airport and the expensive flights or you can go drive down to Detroit or Minneapolis. So either way, I'm getting like a six to eight hour car ride to then get on a plane to go somewhere. So that part of things, but it didn't really bother me. Like, I guess I don't think I was ever really homesick or missing home being far away. So. Nice. Well, I think you've painted a pretty solid picture of a young Brennan engineer. Uh, I guess it's so you probably fit in then well with the Michigan Tech curriculum and and kind of your expectations there. I mean, it fit well with you. You didn't at any point, I guess, through your undergrad, did you feel like this isn't me? Uh, I don't think so. I think in general, the big switch, like for anyone, I mean, it's always a switch going from high school to college. For me, uh, it was kind of a a rude awakening at the beginning because like, my high school didn't have calculus. Uh, we didn't have a lot of these courses that a lot of people come into being like, I had all these classes before. So I'm either like retaking them at the college level or I've already got a bunch of credits. I'm like, I don't know what I'm getting into. So it was it was an interesting switch being like, yeah, I'm pretty good at high school and being like, oh, I have to try a lot harder here at college, which I think is true for a lot of people. But now moving into a, I mean, a more heavy sciencey curriculum um, and engineering side of things and just being exposed to a lot of different stuff that I hadn't been to before. But it was really good. I think it, I think it met the expectations of of what I wanted at the time. But also, like, what are your expectations? You don't you don't necessarily know ahead of time what what you're going to learn. You're like, I don't, I don't know what statics is like, that kind of sounds like statistics, but it's apparently it's not and all these things. But as it progressed through it, obviously it really did, it did match up. And I think the the part for me was, and I mean, this is generic college in, in general, like you get to pick a little bit about what you learn about the extras. And so knowing what I wanted to do of, I wanted to, I was interested in this renewable energy side of things and going through and getting to learn more about a little bit more about what that meant, uh, what I needed to learn. Um, so in addition to, so I have, I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering, but I also got a minor degree in electrical engineering or a minor, not an extra degree, but a minor in electrical engineering. Cause I knew that was an area I was interested in and it was good to be able to kind of switch into that and, and get more experience in that way. I think something else for me that was interesting was I did not do like most people, I didn't do a, like a final senior design project at tech. And I think they might have other universities, but I can't speak for it. Um, you can kind of do like a more years long project type thing. So it was called enterprise programs at, at tech, but it was being part of a team working on it for years, as a few years while you're there and then doing like a final project within that team on a special something specialized that you're working on would count as your graduation requirement. So instead of cramming all that into a years long project, your senior year where you're kind of busy and rushed and stressed, uh, it's a little more spread out. So there, there were I, I did that specifically. Um, oh, man, this is a good one too. Um, working on like a solar car project that I don't think ever actually worked out. Uh, I actually started, re- started, restarted that team uh, during my time there because I wanted to. Um, and so that was actually an interesting experience of building a team, getting something off the ground, having to think about like a business side of things too, of like, hey, we actually need money to do this. How do we do that? How do we get sponsors? Um, and then working on it for a few years. So, so that was a good thing, uh, too, that I enjoyed because it allowed a little bit more hands-on experience, a little more free range of getting to explore new areas outside of general curriculum. And it was something, something I enjoyed getting to do, too. Yeah, well, that's kind of a cool way for you to get experience in something that you're interested in, you know, because you, you talked about how you were interested in renewable energy, and you, I'm sure you kind of looked at ways to get involved in that. And, you know, especially early in an engineering degree, there's not awful, there's oftentimes not a lot of hands-on opportunities 
um, in certain things. And so the cool thing about the enterprise program is that you can start that even your first or second year and start to get cool hands-on experience. Um, but I imagine you looked and there wasn't actually one for um, a renewable energy, but you then just decided to make it yourself or recreate it in this case. But I think it's a good example for those listening. You know, if you're in an institution um, and you have an interest, like you can look out for ways to get hands-on experience in that. And they might call it enterprise or undergraduate research or or other things, but that's a, a great way to kind of get experience and kind of test the waters. As the, as the show has talked about multiple times, you can test the waters with internships, but you can also test it with hands-on experience at the university. And so it sounds like you were able to do that. And, and, and it, it came, unfortunately for you, with a little extra baggage because you had to start it, like finding money. And I'm sure the administrative side, which is never the fun side, but honestly, probably in hindsight now, it, it, it's probably pretty realistic of, and, you know, because engineering is not 100% of the time doing the thing I like. It's oftentimes only a part, hopefully a, a sufficient part, but, you know, sometimes even a minority percentage of the time doing things that you actually enjoy doing and the other majority of the time doing things that are paperwork and other logistics. So, yeah, anytime you're starting up your own project, you would have to do a lot of that extra legwork to get it going. But like you said, like, in college, especially in undergrad, like this is the perfect time to try things and fail and figure them out and figure out what you like and you don't like. The consequences for failure are usually quite small. No one is really expecting much of uh, someone at the undergrad level, at least, you know, the professors and stuff like it's all about learning and experiencing things and figuring things out. It's not like if you start a project and it fails or folds, it doesn't work out that anyone looks down on you in any big way. So it's it's a great time to do that. If you're something you want to learn, like go find someone who help you do it or start it yourself or whatever, like go ahead and do it. It's a great time to. Okay. So solar car, big, big part. Um, and it sounds like it helped continue to push you more towards renewable energy. I guess walk us through kind of how you continued that trend. Yeah, I, I don't, that is almost a little bit where it ends in some places. Um, so Thinking about what I was doing there. So I did that through most of undergrad. Um, and I think during that time, I wanted to try and get like experience working in that. Like, what does an actual job as a mechanical engineer look like in these fields? And and I kind of just came to this conclusion of being like, okay, like I'm really interested in solar panels, but like there isn't necessarily a whole, like, I guess, what do I want to do in that space? Do I want to do like science of developing new solar cells? That's That's not engineering, really. That's like hardcore science experimentation on one end of chemistry and things. Uh, do I want to work on like developing systems out of those? Like that's a little more electrical. Uh, where does mechanical fit into this? I don't know. Um, so there was kind of this like, okay, what does this all mean? Do I need, do I need to like look in another area, figure out what this, what opportunities are out there? Um, so it's kind of doing that, but then also being like thinking long-term of like in a few years, I, I need to get a job. So I should probably get some more experience in this. So thinking about like experience, you know, internships and stuff. I did not get an internship at all until after my fourth year. So I did, I had the five-year program, common theme cool. here. Troy and I both did. Uh, when you try to do anything extra in engineering, like get a minor, uh, just, just add an extra year to it. Don't try to cram that in. That's so recommended. Even if you're bringing in a lot of credits, I mean, to your point earlier point, like, especially nowadays, I think it's pretty relatively easy to bring in a ton of AP credits or dual enrollment through community college credits. Um, so there's, a, I, yeah, I think it's probably pretty common for people to come in with even 15 credits or a semester's worth. So you could probably add a minor and still be in four years. But I think the point we're trying to make though, is it's not about what it's possible. It's about what you should do in terms of like having fun in life and enjoying school. And five years is a great plan. There's obviously financial things you need to consider with that stuff, but that's yeah, as a side note. So, yeah. Um, but like, so 
so every summer up to this point, because like I still need money to help pay for school, uh, I had been going back home and actually working out in the woods for the Forest Service, doing a lot of various activities, including uh, chainsawing, doing a little bit of firefighting and all these things. And I like doing that and made good money. And so I had been putting off getting like a real engineering internship until literally my fourth year. And I was like, well, I guess it's time to do this. Nice. Um, and this is, I'm, I'm going to get in the power of networking here. Um, Cause this is uh, one of the, maybe the more crazy stories of uh, my job search. But so, so career fairs, if you have them at your university, definitely go. They're the best way you're going to get any sort of internship. So I go up to the career fair, um, resume and everything. Uh, I talk to a few companies and I go up and I talk to, I get in the line to talk to people at John Deere. So John Deere comes and recruits um, and hires a lot of people from Michigan Tech. So I go up there, I, I, you know, wait in line, I see the recruiter coming up, person who's there, and I go and talk to him. And I hand my resume and I give my little spiel and they're like, you're from Bonner's Ferry. And I'm like, yeah. And, and I mean, mind you, this is my hometown, Bonner's Ferry, town, middle of nowhere. And he's like, do you know this guy, Tim? And I'll save his last name. Uh, but you know, Tim, like, yeah, I know Tim. Like, yeah, like my family knows him. He, he was like, works in the woods there and stuff. He's like, yeah, yeah. He sits right next to me. And, and I'd forgotten that this, this guy from my hometown had uh, gotten a job working for the logging uh, division of John Deere doing some dumb stuff in like sales, I think, or technical area or something um, and had moved for a little while. And so he literally sat next to this guy hmm. uh, that I was talking to his recruiter. So, uh, you know, I was like, that's crazy, like small world here. Someone that I know from my hometown knows this guy I'm talking to here at the career fair. Um, so I get a call later that night from my dad. He's like, oh, I heard you were talking to John Deere. So so the guy I had been talking to, uh, talked to this guy, this, this mutual uh, friend, Tim, talked to him. And that guy called my dad and got around to it. So this small world thing of like people you talk to at a career fair anywhere else might actually know people you know, and they might call them up and ask about you. So it's it's crazy how that happens. It's the craziest thing about networking to me. Cause like, so we've talked on this show about how networking can be beneficial and you might initially think, well, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And I, I've even given the example on the show, you know, imagine you're a hiring manager and you got 10,000 applicants and you got three on your desk and the, and the, a person, you know, comes to you and recommends them. And it's like, okay, well that makes sense. But networking can even help on like the smallest of fringes, even when they don't even, even when it's not even a recommendation, like, Hey, I, I've worked with them technically and I think they'd be a good technical fit. They have these skills, even if it's just, Hey, I know them, which mm -hmm. has no relevance. Like I could know them and they could not be a good candidate. I could know them and I, I could know them and know nothing about their technical skills, but just the fact that there is a connection sometimes is exactly what needs to happen. And, and it's, it's funny because yours is just a great illustrative example of that. It's like, I mean, it sounds like you knew Tim in high school. It sounds like he has no idea about what your technical ability is as an engineer. Yeah, no, no idea. Like family friend, we, you know, uh, I went to school with with his kids and stuff. But like, yeah, no idea of of how I was as a student or anything. It was surely just I know you. You're a good person, right? To be fair, right? Yeah. So that he does know you as a person, right? And and typically, if you're gonna tell someone you know someone, like, and they're like, I don't know, a bad person, I don't whatever that means, like you would mention that or whatever. And so there is that side of it, but because so that also emphasizes the point of, um, like your ability to network successfully can have more of an effect just by your personality than by your technical ability. And I think that's sometimes a confusing thing for engineers because it's like my technical ability is everything. And it's we've talked about already on the show how, yeah, it's helpful at work, but your your social your, your ability to work with others can be important too. But it also applies very hard in networking too. Like your ability to 
sit down and have a beer with someone and have a conversation and, and be an enjoyable person to be around, like that can be a huge part of networking and it has nothing to do with your technical ability, but could have everything to do with the next job that you have. Exactly. So, I, I, have, I have a lot of thoughts about this that we'll get to later further okay. on the career stuff. But so so anyway, through that experience, I I got an internship at John Deere um, and I was actually there for for that year and the year after, um, which why, why would I have an internship after I graduated? We'll get that. Um, but that was a great experience. Like, obviously, if, if you're in school and you haven't had an internship, go do it. You need to, if anything, you need to figure out if you want to do that career for you know the rest of your life or whatever. Like we've talked about that in the show. You need to get some experience to see what it's like. And also, I think my advice is if you're at like a large company where you think you might be coming back to them for multiple internships, definitely take the time to do a little exploration in that company to see what other opportunities are out there and really set yourself up for that. So so my first year, I was working at Product Development Center for um, basically tractors um, and instrumentation. So I wasn't actually working on the products, but in sort of the test lab and types of things like that. But I wanted to get into the forestry side of things, um, which was at a different facility in a different city. And so I basically just set up like, a, you know, contacted the, the intern coordinator or whatever. And was like, hey, can I do a job shadow for someone else who works over in that facility in forestry? And they're like, sure. So I went over there for like a day, got to see what it was like. And then the next summer, like I said, I wanted to work there and they put me at a job there an internship there. And so it was really great. But it kind of takes you have to take some of the initiative to be like, you know, uh, that's what I want to go do. That's what I want to experience. Because, you know, these these people are coordinating tens, if not hundreds of interns every summer, and they might try to get you in a spot you want, but it's hard for them to do. So you got to you got to take some initiative and really, really put yourself out there and figure out what you want to do. But those experiences were really great. And if I was going to go right into uh, industry after undergrad, I probably would have gone and, and worked for them again. But that isn't what I did at all, actually. So as as you may have heard, uh, I also got a master's degree in, in mechanical engineering, but I did it a little bit differently. So if, if anyone remembers back to the episode with Tony Hayes, who did a, a Peace Corps program and a master's degree, I did the same thing. And that's, that's how Tony and I actually met. Um, partway through my time at Tech, probably sophomore year, they'd announced that they were starting a program where you could get a mechanical engineering degree and do uh, service in the Peace Corps at the same time. So it was a combined a program, in mechanical a master's, yes, mm-hmm. a master's in mechanical engineering um, and do time in the Peace Corps too. And the idea was to how can you like use that engineering skills in the field and in a different context in developing countries and communities in need. And so that's what I decided to do. And so after I graduated uh, undergrad, I went right into that program. And it was it was really interesting because it was a year on campus where I was taking classes maybe outside the realm of normal master's engineering, more in the things of like, how do you do engineering in a low resource environment? Or how do you include the community on projects you're trying to build? Instead of engineering for someone, how do you engineer with someone? Which if you don't think if you only think about engineering in the context of the product you're building and not the person who's using it, you're really missing out on on half of the story there uh, because someone actually has to use what you're what you're making. And so if you're making that for a certain audience that uh, is a, maybe different than what you're used to, your assumptions could be wrong and you have to include a lot of input in that. So it was interesting to, to learn about that. And then uh, to also get to go in the, the field and act that out. So I, uh, I lived for two years in Senegal, which is a country in West Africa. And my, my day job, as I like to say, when I was there was doing agroforestry, which is a big word for incorporating trees into farming. 
Um, and that was that was that was what I did there was how can I help people plant trees for for gardening for lots of different stuff. But at the same time, I was working on a master's project, which was focused around water pumps. So people there uh, obviously don't have a lot of running water sometimes. Uh, they're pulling a lot of water from wells uh, that are hand dug in the ground with a bucket and a rope and a pulley. And I was like, technologies already exist to how to fix this problem, but why aren't they adopted here? So I did kind of a journey on what are the the issues with current technologies out there? You know, is it cost? Is it functionality? What is it? Um, and how can we improve upon that? So I, I focused on trying to improve a certain type of, of human-powered water pump that would hopefully be better. Um, how could reduce cost on it? How can make it easier to use? Um, and that, that's an interesting journey of how to do that. How do, how do you make something in an environment that that doesn't have the, the resources, the facilities like you're used to? You don't maybe have internet or can't get help. Uh, there's no Google access to help you. It's it's just an interesting way of thinking about flexing engineering muscle for a different context and different resource um, and getting to do that in an academic area too of to like come back, validate your ideas, uh, do what you do in the field, match up with what you can test for in the lab um, and how do you make something like of high value out of that. So it was a really great experience and, 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 and I could talk for a long time about the other parts of it, but that's that's outside the scope of this. Yeah, well, I think something that um, you kind of glossed over a little bit, but I think would be really helpful for the broader listenership is obviously at some point you were in undergrad and you were thinking you wanted to do something besides go to John Deere for for whatever reason. And so you elected to go for this program. And so I guess, can you talk about how you made that happen financially? Like how, how, like how did you, how did this all work? I mean, I think you, you is another example of you creating opportunity that I think those listening who might want to create opportunities for themselves could, could learn from. You're, you're fishing, you're fishing, you know what you're looking for here. Um, so yeah, so, so I guess I did skip a few things. Uh, one was, I was also involved in a little bit of research uh, late undergrad around sort of uh, developing world technologies a little bit, um, and also in the 3D printing space. Um, it was like, how can we use this technology to, like, how what could it be used for in other countries? Um, and so that led me thinking, like, what could projects could could be formed around this? And while that wasn't necessarily what I did my final project on, it uh, allowed me to think about, like, what could fund a project like this? What kind of funding can I get? Because once you get out of undergrad, there's, there's a lot of different funding opportunities. You're not going for scholarships. You're going for, like, fellowships. Um, and so I applied for a fellowship from the National Science Foundation, which basically funds a whole like your whole master's program and gives you a stipend on top of it. So it makes it more like a, a job. And I was lucky enough to be a recipient of that. So I received funding for for a master's degree to pay for all of it, um, as well as give me some money on the side just for living. But applying for a lot of these things. So, so there's a lot of fellowships out there. Um, a lot of through the government. So there's National Science Foundation, Department of Defense, NASA, uh, National Institutes of Health, Department of Energy. Uh, these all have programs where they're trying to fund people who are getting graduate degrees um, to do research that might, you know, have an impact in some way. And so they're looking for these every year. They're giving out thousands of these to different students across the country. Um, and applying for them can be a lot easier than you think. I had to basically fill out an application, which was basic information about myself, and then write three two-page essays. I don't know if that's what it is still today, but it was basically write a few papers and get tens of thousands of dollars if you get selected. In oh, money. yeah, like, not that easy. I mean, I so I lived I lived with Brendan when he did this, and it was a pretty excruciating process developing the perfect words for these two papers. So definitely for the big tens of thousands of dollars ones, it's going to take a lot of work. But I don't mean I'm not. 
I just want people to be clear on that. But I think the, the big important takeaway here is, is you can create opportunities for yourself yes. to be fully funded through a master's or, or and or PhD program with opportunities out there that are designed for that. And I think that's great for those listening that are maybe thinking, well, I don't know if I'm, you know, industry is kind of cool, but I'm thinking about maybe doing something else. I have these interests in this other space. Like it, the, a lot of these things, especially like the NSF, the government ones, are pretty broad in scope and you mm-hmm. can tailor a lot of thing, quote unquote, things you're interested in into projects that they would fund. And so I guess that's the main thing I want. I wanted to take away from, from that section of the story that I, I just want people to realize, because I think kind of one of the cool parts about your story, Brian, especially illustrated thus far, is your ability to take your interest and kind of create opportunities, whether it's creating a um, enterprise team because you wanted to do that or creating this funding for you to get your master's. I think that's great, man. And I think for those listening that that have interest in the willingness to do it, I think this is a, your story is a great example of how, what that looks like to do it. What are examples of things that you do to actually make what you want to have happen? Um, and so, yeah, that's awesome. I think that's fantastic. And I would note that like I talk about this now, but at the time this is happening, I was not confident in any of it at all. I like I wasn't even thinking about even applying for the fellowship because I was like, I don't I don't think I'm good. No, I'm not you know, smart enough. I'm not have a good enough idea. Um, but I was like, so I sat on these things for a while and I was like, okay, well maybe I will. Let me go talk to someone. Like, do you think it's a good idea? And they're like, yeah, you should do this. So like none of these things were me just like jumping out being like, I'm definitely made for this. I'm going to do great. Like this totally fits it. No, I was like, eh, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm made for this. So don't, if, if you're not confident in it, that like, don't let that stop you because there's definitely more opportunity out there than you think. And there's, you you could be the perfect fit for something that you don't actually think you are. There's also a lot of failure along the way too. Like I I remember just as an example, like from you trying to quote unquote raise money for solar car. Like I remember there was like, wasn't there like a bunch of companies that just never got back to you? Oh and yeah. Like you you reached out. I remember like there was times where you're just like reaching out and trying to reach out to all these companies to see if they'll just even donate anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, like cold reaching out to like people on LinkedIn who are alumni who worked at, who worked at companies like, man, yeah, there was a lot of failure along the way and a lot of good lessons learned in that. But, uh, yeah, that's part, that's part of walking the path of you figuring out what you want to do. I mean, you could have you could have followed the template of get a mechanical engineering degree, take these classes, you do senior design, you do an internship, and then you work at that company when you're done. But you knew that you were that's not what you wanted to do. You you kind of went down that path, and you realize this isn't what I wanted to do. Like I want to be more focused in these other things. And um, I think it's great how you made opportunities for yourself to do that. I think that's that's the point. I think is really illustrated with those listening is you can make. The opportunities for yourself. It's going to take work and maybe doing some other things that you're not necessarily interested to get there, like administrative stuff or raising money, but it's possible. And it's undergrad's a great time to do it. So, um, okay. So, so you, I guess, yeah, I don't think we'll necessarily talk too much about your Peace Corps time and stuff. I think kind of a, a, a little bit different here. I think maybe the biggest thing, um, is kind of wrapping up your master's kind of your thoughts, like comparing your, your master's program to a different one. I mean, I think the master's in Peace Corps is no longer an option anymore. So it's not really a thing for people, Correct. even if they wanted to do it. So I don't, you know, there's not, not too much sense in comparing that to a traditional one for those who maybe would want to decide, but, um, the benefits, let me, let me talk about like other benefits. So putting aside what, what I did specifically in mine, um, I think, and I don't think these are my words, uh, I probably heard them from someone else, but like, the benefit of a master's degree in a lot of ways is not necessarily the knowledge you gain, but it is the way that you choose like to think about things and approach problems and expand your kind of your mind on how you go about what you're doing. And so that's really what that's really what the extra push 
was in the masters of i think the big benefit is is it's how do i how do i think about broader more ambiguous problems that aren't just from a textbook how do i think approaching a project how do i think more critically about things um because you'll have to do a lot of that really in no matter what masters you do maybe not a coursework but if you're doing any sort of research or anything like there, there are questions that no one necessarily has the answer to. They're not a book answer. You have to go and figure that out. And so learning that skills and how to operate in that space is really beneficial. And it will help you a lot further on, no matter what you want to do. If you want to continue on to a PhD, if you want to go and get a job in industry or whatever, like having that just extra way of, of problem solving critical thinking is a huge benefit of getting a master's. Uh, so don't just think of it as I want to get you know experience in this technical area, but think about it as I want to just be general generally better in how i how i solve problems mm-hmm. yeah problems that are no we've talked about it i can't remember what episode but <clears throat> illustrated the example of you know if if you come to a problem that's already known it's already been in the back of the book like that's that's what undergrad is learning learning what you don't know but has already been solved but there's this other realm of learning what you don't know that no one's ever solved before and those are different types of learning and yeah the research masters you know starts to really push you into that realm and i think that's uh it sounds like you're able to continue that um, in your experience too, which is great. Um, so I think, I guess let's talk a little bit about how you how you wrapped up your master's and kind of proceeded to life. I don't know what to call it. Indi- yeah, what, what, is, what is, yeah, once you leave campus, what is life? What is, what is um, it, the, the rest of life? Yeah. So, uh, so I had some time, um, you know, after I, I wrapped up, I did my, um, uh, did my defense for my master's, um, finished up some classes and things. It was like, yeah, now, now I have to get a job. Where am I at? And I luckily had the convenience of a few months of, you know, chilling around campus, not having too many responsibilities and finally reached the point. I'm like, okay, time to get a job. But I, st- I still had this interest in like renewable energy. I also had an interest in like thermal systems, um, which is very, very broad um, and ambiguous. And I should have, should have narrowed that down a little bit. But again, it came basically time to be like, here's the, the career fairs coming up or now in a lot of campuses, companies will come pre-career fair. Cause they're like, we want to lock everyone down ahead of time. Um, and so I had, I had no intention of going into the automotive industry at all, but uh, it was an opportunity. There were some companies going to be on campus. And I said, you know what, like electric vehicles are becoming a thing like that kind of follows renewable energy space a a little bit like I can I can make in my mind, make some connections there. So maybe that'd be an interesting area to get into. So I went and talked to some people uh, at General Motors who were on campus one day. And uh, I, I think I did a, a, like a brief interview on like the bed of a pickup or something with someone because I wasn't actually going to be around the next day for when they were doing interviews. So they're like, well, let's talk to you now. Talk to someone there. And this is, this is more networking. And then I met someone later in the day who I was like, man, I remember you from undergrad a little bit. Like you seem familiar to me. Oh, okay. Like here's, I didn't know you, but I, you know, what you look like. So like I talked to, talked to this other guy, um, Jay, who was, was really great. And what he basically did was he, he forwarded my resume onto his boss and be like, Hey, here's someone like, I know we're kind of looking for someone. Does it work? And that kind of kicked off like the process of getting into the interview process with, with general motors um, and going down the path of getting hired with them. And a lot of that was, was making a connection with someone and not necessarily just adding my resume to the pile, but getting a, okay, here's a face to face. Here's someone we like, um, instead of for sending this through your normal recruiting process, like I'm just gonna send it right to my boss and we're going to go with that. And that worked out really well. So again, like make connections with people uh, in any way you can. It's definitely going to pay off. And so I, uh, I accepted a job at GM uh, doing uh, calibration. So we, we've talked to Adam Heinzen on the show before. Him and I worked very closely during my time there. He was he talked a little about calibration, but I'll go into that more. 
Um, but I was doing active thermal management calibration. Um, so working on a new thermal management system, which is which is out now. So that's why I can talk about it. But uh, I, I knew nothing about the job I was getting into. I didn't, I'm not a car guy really at all. Troy can attest to this uh, in, in our experiences together. Like I had never studied engines. I had never really been interested in it. So I'm like, all right, I'm working for an automotive company now. Uh, I guess this is what I'm gonna do. I'm going to learn a lot. And so calibration specifically, um, to, to give a brief overview, is basically everything on your vehicle these days on a modern car is controlled by a computer. And you have to make that function correctly. So my job was taking the hardware of a, a cooling system. So in a, in a vehicle, um, in these new systems, it's, you know, multiple electrically controlled valves or pumps and sensors that are a lot different from an old system. Taking the hardware for those that someone else made and designed, taking the software to control those and the algorithms that someone else made and designed. And I have to make those work together to like the performance standards that we want for a vehicle. And the first thing about this is like, it's not that none of the education I had didn't matter. But when you go from solving things on paper and problems to now solving things that are new and haven't been done before and are not just a simple equation, like, it becomes very hands-on and experimental and just trying to figure out what the right answer is. Cause we weren't, I'm not necessarily designing something where, you know, the outcome is we need to have a, a bridge or whatever that holds this much or a, a beam that can do whatever it's yeah, We need to have this, uh, the system work to keep the engine cool, but to maximize fuel efficiency. And it has to meet, you know, these emission standards. You're using tools that you didn't have in college, like proprietary tools that you have to learn on the job for like software and things. Um, and it's a very much a, an iterative process, uh, something that like you can't necessarily learn in school. You can learn how to how to problem solve and critical think, but not how to do the specific job. Uh, so it's always a good learning uh, environment of which to get your hands dirty and do things. Well, I think it's a, a good example of a I don't know I, I dare call it a typical engineering job where yeah. where the work isn't ta- something you're taught in university that what you're taught in university is how to learn, think critically, and have a general understanding of physics and how the universe interacts with itself. And you take that bundle of knowledge from the university and you go sit at this job where you apply all that. And, you know, it's like, for you, it's like, well, I I took a thermodynamics class, so I know some of that stuff, but you're not using thermodynamics equations. You're not looking at heat transfer between this and this and adjusting the heat transfer coefficient to get, no, you just need to know that if this piece of metal is touching this water that's colder, heat's going to go from the metal to mm-hmm. the water. Like that's, uh, yeah. Okay. It seems like trivial, but like you, that's a, a simple example, but as an engineer, you get experience to a, a bunch of systems and physical things. And, and it, you take that broad knowledge into a general engineering job. And I don't know, man, I have no idea what the stats are, but I think there's a lot of jobs in engineering that are that type of thing where it's, you're, you're just taking your broad quote unquote engineering knowledge from university and your critical thinking skills and taking that and you're just asked to apply it every day the best you can. And it sounds like that's that's what yours was, which is pretty interesting because I mean, it's in some ways it was probably very similar to your master's experience where you were just, you had this broad question and you were trying to understand these systems. and um, But in some ways, probably also very, 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 very different because you're going from, you know, developing country in Africa to General Motors, probably one of the most developed processes from an engineering perspective um, in complex systems. So how was that adjustment? How did you, how did, how did that go for you? How did, how, how did you get comfortable in that? 
Uh, it was a lot of just like feeling dumb for a long time. Um, I got very lucky in that that my coworkers that I worked with were were very smart and like very encouraging in a lot of ways, and we were all kind of learning together. Um, but just always understanding that like you're learning something new, whether it's you're jumping into a new project and you have to figure it out, or there's you know a small change, something you've been doing for a while, but something's a little bit different now. Like what is the opportunity to learn there? Because if you just try to like go through and follow steps and be like, eh, okay, whatever. Like I know if I do this, something works out, but not understand the why always uh, you're not really under, you're not really getting a, a big picture understanding of what's going on. And so for me, it was a lot of like asking questions and looking dumb or feeling like I'm looking dumb, but uh, realizing also there's probably a lot of people around you who might have the same questions or might not actually know anything super in depth either, uh, but they're able to get by with their job. So it's it takes a lot of that. It takes a lot of humility and being like, you've explained this to me three times. How about, how about the fourth time? Maybe I'll get it the fourth time if you explain it to me. Um, but then just like building up the confidence of doing it. So I got, I don't know, lucky or an interesting experience of like joining a team and then after of multiple people um, working on one thing. And then after a year, I was like the only one working on it, you know, fully in charge of it and being like, I don't necessarily understand everything, but uh, I guess it's my uh, responsibility now. So I'm going to I'm going to own it and take the do make the most of it that I can. Uh, so anytime you get into something new, like learn, ask them questions and just, just own it and go with it. Yeah. And I think I also want to point out here that you don't need to be a car guy to work in the automotive industry. Absolutely not. I think there's, there's some ways where it can be beneficial, like basically in like your Rolodex of, of words, you know, you're going to be more comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, like when you get started and they're like, yeah, well, this connects to the cylinder head and routes down to this. Like if you're a car person, you might already know that and have experience with it, but it's nothing you can't learn. It's not, you know, I don't know. So I think and, and so I would say I am a car guy and I worked in the automotive industry and I didn't feel like, I felt like in some ways, mostly just because I knew where stuff was, like I was at an advantage, but it's, it's you can learn it. It's very, very easy to learn in there. I can guarantee, I, I guarantee you, I, I think a lot, a majority of the engineers that work in the automotive industry are not car people, like working on their car on the weekends type people for sure. Yeah. For sure. And the difference between like being a car guy and we think of someone who works on, on their car on the weekends and someone who does the job is like, you know, the person who works on their car on their weekends doesn't need to understand like fuel injection strategies or pressures in systems, or they don't need to understand uh, like emissions diagnostics, which is a huge part of automotive, like, you know, air emissions, making sure that we're detecting broken things. Like these are all stuff that you wouldn't necessarily learn if you're just a normal car guy. But if you're an engineer, you're like, it's just, it's, it's, it's another system. It's another thing that I can, I can pick up and understand. Like if it wasn't in a car, it would be somewhere else and I could, I could learn it. So there were, I, it's hard to say maybe 50, 50 split of like car guys versus non-car guys. I guess I, 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 that's, that's an, that's an unofficial number, but like I worked with other people who were like, indifferent on cars to a little bit and be like, yeah, it's an interesting job and I get to do stuff, but like I'm not working on cars on the weekends and that's fine. Right. I think the big takeaway for me there is just when you're looking at jobs and places you want to go, like don't get industry bias, meaning don't be like, well, I'm not a car person, so I can't go into the automotive industry. If you're interested in thermal interaction and calibration of sensors and sensor network, like calibration is a great job. Yeah. It's working with a car, but you know, I don't like, I think, yeah, I, it's just my comment on for those listening. Like, I mean, you can look at your look at your interests and then go from there in terms of what industry and job title you're looking for. 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll give a little bit more because I know sometimes we try to give a little bit data, a better understanding of what the day to day part of the job yeah, is like. It, what's it like uh, working day to day at the at the general? At the general, man. Yeah. Um, big, so big I mean, because it, it's relevant for those. I mean, the General Motors is a huge company. It and is. So their huge. engineering processes and like all of the bureaucracy, like this is big. This is big engineering business. And so, um, yeah, I guess what's what's that like to to walk in that space? Yeah, so let let me talk a little bit about what it's like being a a calibrator first and the and the day to day of that job. Um, because in in the automotive industry, being a calibrator is one of the more hands on jobs you will get with actually driving like a vehicle and running an engine. So I was I was driving vehicles all the time, prototype vehicles, mule vehicles, like. You know, we, we, we put this new engine, new system in it, got to go test it out. So um, I got to work at the Milford Proving Grounds, which was great. Uh, you get miles and miles of test track. You're, you're going out, you're driving, you're collecting data, looking at it afterwards, seeing how things work. Um, but you're also, you're also doing a lot of things that like outside of the normal realm of driving a vehicle. So many days I would go into a thermal chamber and I would drive a vehicle at like negative 20 C or something, or I, which is... I, I think and see, but uh, pretty cold Fahrenheit. I don't know exactly what it is, uh, but other times I'd be riding, running at like, you know, 120 degrees Fahrenheit, going across all these temperature ranges, uh, doing a lot of just like putting your foot down fully on the pedal and understanding how the engine responds. So you could do a lot of interesting stuff of things you can't do on the normal road because it'd be it'd be unsafe if there are other people around, but you're on these closed tracks. So it's it's interesting to do that and then interesting to be very involved in like data and data analysis, uh, getting to run your own little experiments of, okay, what if I if I try this? How do things respond? Let me go back and look at the data. So it's kind of a mix of collecting data in a vehicle, going back, looking at that data and making adjustments in terms of your your set of, of calibrations that control how the engine operates. You also will likely get to go, you'll get to travel a little bit. I think just about every automaker uh, has multiple spots in the U.S. where they travel on test trips, um, so that way they can get you know infer- they can get real driving experience in their vehicles over the road, usually at altitude, at cold temperatures and hot temperatures. So uh, if you want to go drive around certain parts of the country in new vehicles, uh, calibration can be a place to do that. So those are I guess those are that's the general area and some, some highlights of it. There's definitely some downfalls to it too, but in general, what is it like working for a huge company? man, that is, that is a, a big question. There are lots of things about it. You are definitely like one piece in a larger puzzle. When you're working on a large system, such as a vehicle, there are thousands of people working on that at different stages. So like I worked on one small part of an engine. There are other people working on the seats, on the body, on the frame, who I don't know who they are, um, but we're all making something that comes together to make a functional product. So you might, you'll be working on something that you won't even know everyone who else who's working on the final product that comes off the line, but you're responsible for your part and they're responsible for theirs. And then also just thinking about where you fit in the system of how does information flow down to you? Cause there are all these processes, there's, there's reviews, there's, you know, chief engineers who are people who are making decisions that affect you that you might not get a say in. Um, so it's understanding how that works and also understanding how you represent yourself and your work um, back up that chain to say, OK, here's the work I did. Here's I know why it's good and explaining that to a different levels of, of audiences, because 
because like you are working on a large product, no one knows everything. So how do you take your area that you're really specialized in and explain that to a broader audience so they can understand and they they will also like buy in that your work is good? Um, that can be a, a very interesting uh, challenge in some ways. Um, and and also dealing with people in all different parts of the, the company may be coming to you because they think you're responsible for something. You know, in my case, you know, the engine didn't warm up right why i'm like well there's a lot of things that play into that like that's that's not just a me question that might involve 10 other people to understand that so working in a large company can be very very interesting from that perspective because it's never just you it's always a team on multiple levels you might be part of a a team that you work on underneath your boss but you might have you know responsibility report outs to someone else on a different team in their area or another one and you got to work cross-functionally in a lot of ways uh so you get to you get to work with a lot of different people definitely yeah, and I think, I don't know, part of that too is also just realizing that at big companies, things just take longer because of that. You know, you can't bring in Anna, who's she's responsible for the whole system, and she can just come in and tell you everything you need to know about the system. It's like, okay, well, if you have a question, sometimes it's it's a, it's a call with 30 people because everyone's got to kind of have their thing. And it's like, well, okay, well, thermal, thermal calibration says it could be this, but the hardware guy says, well, maybe it's this. Or software people are saying, well, it could be this too. And, you know, like it's... That's unfortunately the, the disadvantage of it and kind of, I don't know, some people, some people kind of, they'll talk about like this, the game, this like game of these big companies and how you're playing this game. And I, I don't know, I, I can see how people get to that conclusion where it feels like that. Cause you kind of feel like you're playing this chess game of moving these pawns and, and sure, I, whatever you want to call it. I mean, but it's essentially this idea of there's many, many people coming together to try and achieve some goal. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's an engineering objective or, making ice cream like you know like there's just going to be kind of some pros and cons of trying to do that with a big group of people um even you just think of those game the game telephone the game that when you're a kid and you play like telephone game and like just showing you how communication can be so poor like try doing that but with a very technical thing <laughs> and mm-hmm. they, it's it gets tricky quick and it gets a lot of misinformation and and a lot of information that's left out and i don't know a lot a lot of different things and so i think some people can find that very frustrating though, I guess is what I'm saying. Like there, there's some people that get into that environment and they find it very frustrating. And that's why we've talked about a lot on this show, understanding if a big or smaller company is for you. Some people don't mind it. Some people like working with a bunch of people and they enjoy the fact that their job has them interacting with people from all over the world or uh, multiple people every single day. And they, they like that. And that's great. I think it's just looking internally and seeing what's kind of best for you um, is important. And internships can help with that because they start to give you that exposure of what the difference is. Definitely. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, yeah, the the big company thing, it's and looking back on it, I'm sure there's lots of things I'm I'm missing about it. But yeah, like it's 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 different in so many ways. And I think the big part is that like you will you might not see the big picture of everything because there are a lot of different people that have input into that and there are many levels above you that stuff just kind of comes down to you and you have to roll with it. Um that's it's definitely one of the downsides is, is is decisions can kind of be a one-way street a little bit from the top down. And part of that also has to deal with the product you're working on. Like in my case, I'm getting something that has been in development for years already that, you know, some like research area was looking at um, and that came down a level to then how do we actually get into production and stuff. So by the time it gets to me, like I, I have little say in how how can we make it better um, if, if I see a problem that lies outside my realm of control, 
Like it's likely that it won't be changed because it's already been ingrained in the process and the product for years and making that change might cost a lot of money and time. And so that can always be a little bit of a struggle is when you're down sort of on, on the bottom rung, we're in calibration, especially you're, you're almost the last, uh, the last man on the totem pole, at least in terms of workflow, because you have to make things work before they go out the door. So that can always be a little frustrating because you don't always know who made these decisions or where they came from. There's not always, you know, a good, uh, communication trail of how this stuff was made. And that can be definitely one area of frustration of, of how you fit into the whole system and, and what you're dealing with on, on your end, not knowing where the, all the information came from. But to be fair, there are some people out there that like that. They want an engineering job that they go to work 40 hours a week or so, and they're told that, hey, this is what we need to accomplish. And they, they do that, and they do it to the best of their ability, and that's good with them. And they you know they do that for the rest of their life, and that's great. And I think big companies allow you to do that. Like if, if that's your mm-hmm. mindset, you know, maybe work isn't necessarily something that you, I don't know, it's not super important to you, or it's, you know, it's definitely not your number one. You got other things outside of life that you want to more prioritize your time on and what you need a job. And so like, I, I think that's fine. I think, but yeah, just another thing to know, like as an advantage of a big company is there's opportunities for you to do that. They, they need seats. What, they need butts and seats in some place. I forgot what, what the... Hey, butts and seats. And if you want to stay in that seat for your whole career, for some, you know, some parts of the company, people want you to do that because it means there's there's less churn, there's less having to hire and fill it and everything else. Uh, I'm not saying it's necessarily great for a career, but like if you're comfortable doing with that, like there's definitely opportunities to do that. There's, you know, people who have been calibrators for tens of years for their whole career basically um and and they're comfortable doing that they don't see the need to move and if that's if that's where it line up with you like there's there's definitely a good good chance you could keep doing that yeah i I mean i think that's kind of another nice advantage of like a big company like if you if you get into something and you like it you can do it for the probably the rest of your life if you're you know as long as you're sufficiently good at it like like that's cool like that's awesome like i think that's great I, i have for people that have that mindset i think that's awesome so um yeah. So anyways, you know, just a little bit on the big versus small company thing. So, um, okay. So I guess let's, let's transition. So you're not at GM right now, I guess let's transition a little bit in terms of how, how you knew you wanted to make a change and kind of talk, talk about that in terms of doing something different. Yeah. So I, I was in my job there for probably about two years and then realized I wanted to try something else, uh, within the company. Like I wanted to move more into the electrical, the electric vehicle space. That was kind of more of my interest, um, initially when, you know, back in college and what I wanted to do. So I said, okay, like, let's start looking for a job for that. Unfortunately, around the time where I was going to start doing that, uh, there was a very large round of layoffs at GM, which, uh, if anyone lives in the Detroit area or Michigan, you may have may have seen that. Um, And going through layoffs is a very interesting time. Kind of scary in a lot of ways, because you don't know if you're going to be the one who loses your job next when it just seems they're just walking people out the door left and right. Um, And for whatever reasons, they may be doing that. I won't get into the the philosophies of that, I guess, and, and some feelings I have about it. But um, but that kind of delayed my my job search in a lot of ways, because when you're laying off people, you probably aren't also, you know, moving people around the company a lot and hiring a lot of new people. So that that delayed uh, my search for a job by about six months or so. And I, so I so I started applying for jobs once they were opening back up um, and I applied for a few jobs in the company. I, I and I don't even remember. So these are these like internal job postings. I probably applied for like over a six month period, maybe like five jobs. I interviewed for two of them um i would and i I didn't get them 
so just just a note about like internally looking for jobs um, that can be an interesting process because you're already in the company so like you can already kind of reach out to managers who might be be listed as the hiring manager for that job and try to learn more about it um, and because you're in the company you know it's a little less like you know cold calling someone or reaching out you can reach out to them a little more informally and learn more about it but they're also not necessarily trying to recruit as much in the sense of like when you when you first join a company, you know, they'll, they'll give you the whole, you know, this is why we're great and why we're awesome and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when you're you're interviewing for a new job, it's like, hey, prove to us that that you're going to be the best candidate for this. We're not necessarily trying to recruit you as much as we know you want this job. So things can just be a little different. They can be a little more informal. Um, I actually had to do video interviews. This this is pre-COVID times, but like recorded video interviews that would then be looked at by someone to decide if if uh, I would be a good candidate, which was a really weird thing of like, here's a question that pops up on the screen, record yourself answering it, and we'll look at it and get back to you. That that just felt very impersonal to me in a lot of ways and uh, and was was weird. I know a lot of people didn't like that. And so moving, you know, through those phases just just feels a lot different. Um, communication in some ways can be slower than when you're an outside candidate um, or faster. It really depends. But so so I, I interviewed for two jobs, actually got accepted and, and, and did jobs interviews in person. But I didn't uh, I didn't get chosen for those jobs. Um, I didn't get a lot of feedback on why I didn't because they kind of felt within my realm. One was for like a different calibration position in electric vehicles and one was for a thermal position in electric vehicles. So so th- so two jobs that had some of the exact words that were in my current job title um, and I still was not not a good fit for those. And so that was a little frustrating for me in a lot of ways. It was like, OK, like I'm trying to make this move. Um, I'm applying for other jobs that I thought you know, I was less interested in, but I thought I would at least be able to more likely to get the job. And I wasn't even like getting any callbacks on those to do any sort of follow up. And so I really reached this point of, of frustration. Um, in my current job, um, I was in, I've been doing it for a few years, it had slowed down from being new stuff to now just being kind of doing the same thing over again, I, I called it rinse and repeat a lot, because there's a lot of work that has to be redone. If, if a new model of a car comes out where everything is mostly the same, but you still have to run a lot of the same tests to make sure it, you know, it complies with um, laws and emissions things. Um, and it wasn't, wasn't very exciting for me anymore. I was looking for something new. And so after kind of some of these setbacks, as well as uh, a decision um, for my wife and I to want to move to be be closer to family and things, uh, I decided that, you know, it was it was time for me to leave GM and pursue other opportunities. And so this 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 part now, this is all happening during during COVID times. Uh, and so deciding to to quit your job uh, without having another one lined up um, in the middle of a pandemic is an interesting thing, which I can't say I necessarily recommend. But um, having gone through it now and seeing it work out for a lot of people, I think in the engineering area, if you're going into the right industry, um, it can definitely work out. Well, another point, too, just I mean, just to Adam Heinzen's episode too, talking about like, mm-hmm. If you think you're kind of thinking about you're going to make a change and you have at least the luxury, kind of look at your industry cycle times. Most industries have a high and a low. And if you think you're going to be making a change, like trying to make your change when it seems most likely you're not going to be in some serious trough. Um, but to your point that, that we'll get into, you also need to look at the industry that you potentially might want to go into because, you know, yeah, the industry you're in might be in a bad time. But if you're making a jump to an industry that's in a good time, it doesn't matter. So, but yeah, Adam had some interesting insights on that if you want to listen to that episode, but okay. So you're thinking about making a move, moving to more closer to family. 
Yeah. So um, for us that, you know, I was working in the Metro Detroit area for us, that meant moving across the state to the Grand Rapids area, which we're at now and moving somewhere like not an automotive industry in there really as much. There's there's a lot of suppliers, I should say, but it's moving from a, a OEM type area to more of a supplier base uh, generally. So people who are supplying a lot of in West Michigan, a lot of like plastic parts to, uh, to automotive companies. Um, there's also a few other industries that I was looking at, but I was basically like, I, I need a job. I got to support the family here. So I got to cast my net pretty wide. Um, and before I even kind of made this switch after some of the the disappointment of not getting selected for some jobs within GM, I actually had decided to get some career coaching in a lot of ways, which was something I had not thought about before at all. But it had kind of come recommended to me um, through through a coworker of mine, I think whose wife did it, just a, a, a woman who by referral like has was an engineer, had been doing it for years and now decided to like, you know, help young engineers uh, get things figured out on their career side. And that was actually a really helpful experience over a few sessions, like understanding things about improving the resume, but also about like thinking about what you really want to do. Like, where do you fit in in your personality? Are you someone who is really good at wanting to just run tests and look at data? Or do you want to be more creative and, you know, prototype things and build stuff early on and not necessarily have to worry about all the details of how it's actually going to come off the manufacturing line or something. And that was a really helpful experience for me to think about what kind of jobs should I be looking for? Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I learned necessarily anything new, but it brought things to the surface I hadn't thought about of, okay, here's a job, but uh, I don't think that job is actually going to be what I want to do. So that really helped me guide a little bit of what I was looking for. And, and of course in the, in the pandemic, there came a time where I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm quitting my job in two weeks. I don't have a job lined up. I got to lower my standards a little bit here. But I got very lucky. So I uh, there was a job opening at Bissell. So Bissell Home Care, uh, maker of cleaning products, vacuums, carpet cleaners, lots of things like that. They're based out of West Michigan there in Grand Rapids. And they had an opening for a, a product development engineer. And I had seen that. And I'd actually interviewed with them previously for a electronics testing engineer, which was outside of my realm of expertise, but kind of sounded interesting. Um, I didn't get that job, but uh, they had said, hey, like, we kind of like you as a candidate. So if you see something else, get a hold of us when you apply for it. And so another job came up. I called the recruiter and I was like, hey, I applied for this job. And it kind of like fast tracked me into the getting an interview. And uh, the job, I mean, the job descriptions, of course, and we've talked about this before, job descriptions don't actually match job realities. But at least the job description on this was very interesting of, yeah, like getting to develop products, getting to be part of the whole life cycle, um, working with multiple people in the company um, in different areas. Um, so that really that really appealed to me. And, and I got lucky enough to interview for that job and, and was accepted for it. And what I found out later was that uh, and, and you can still figure this out now if you just go to the companies and see how many job postings they have, that pandemic has been a big boom for for home cleaning products in a lot of different ways. Like that was an industry that has blown up basically in a good way because of because of the pandemic. More people are at home. Uh, they're cleaning their house more. Sanitation is a big thing. So a lot of companies in that space are are were hiring and maybe still are. Um, so that was definitely one way that I benefited from that. Can you talk a little bit more about how you casted a wide net, what that looks like? I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people that go and say, okay, well, I'm going to make a change. And I mean, what did, what did that look like for you? Like, just, does that mean just going to Indeed and just typing engineer as opposed to calibration engineer? Like, like how, how do you do that? Yeah, it, uh, it, 
it took a lot of legwork in figuring out what even companies existed. So I knew the geographic area I was going into. I knew the industry, industries would be a little different. And I was like, okay, I, I can go to Indeed. I can look for jobs. Like, uh, I go on Glassdoor and see what's out there. Let me just search Google Maps and be like, what companies exist in these, you know, these industrial areas where they might be engineering? Like, looking at all that and saying, what's out there? What do they do? Making lists of stuff. I had a few, you know, sheets of information on like what companies might I want to work for, and also like reaching out to people. So I had I had actually interviewed with a company in West Michigan uh, before I took my job at GM. And nothing worked out there that time. And so I had still, I had reached out to them again and said, hey, like, I'm still interested in working here. And um, I was actually, I think, interviewed with them and was going down that route. Um, and, then, and then the pandemic hit and that kind of closed the opportunities on that. But even talking with them and then asking, like, who else should I talk to? You know, I called a few other people who worked at other companies and said, hey, what do you do? My, my mother-in-law, like, knew someone whose husband worked for a company type thing is like, you know, f- higher up in their engineering department. It was it was calling people, emailing, trying to get more information about what existed out there um, and asking them, like, you know, what what exists in this area. And so it was for me specifically, I was looking less at industries and more at what I wanted to do. So I wanted to be a little more hands on, a little more in the prototype phase of things. Uh, I wanted to be further upstream than I was at my my previous job where I was at the end of the line trying to figure things out. And so it was a lot of a lot of a lot of legwork in searching those job boards, looking at companies, uh, websites specifically, and trying to figure out what was out there. Pretty tough because I mean, as we've talked about on the show a bunch of times, is job descriptions stink at telling you what you actually do every day. And there, as far as it sounds like, I mean, there's really still not many options, right? It's still it's still just trying to kind of go off that. But I think your your point's good in that you know you can. It's not just looking at job boards too. It can also be looking at companies because as we've also found out a lot in the show is you can create opportunities. Like you can, if you know, if you were to find a company that looked really interesting to you that did something very interesting, like regardless of whether or not they had a posting out, you could still reach out to them and that may have may have an opportunity to get you something that you're interested in. Or who knows, you know, you apply at a, at a company and like you had, like yeah, the initial posting didn't work out, but it, it can keep you in line for a potentially different thing. So I think that's a that's a really good thing too because I think what your your search is also very relevant, Brandon, for people who are trying to just move to a different location because work is not their number one priority. I mean, it happens a lot with family. We've we've hinted at this sometimes in this show, but there's also Adam Heinzen's episode is a great example of kind of the second transition in an engineer's life. There's the transition from undergrad to first job, and that's kind of what would interest. But there's a second transition where life family and other things become more important than your job. And you start making career decisions based on your life being more important than your career. And that oftentimes I think has, I mean, less now with the pandemic, but at least it used to be that the location was key. And so a lot of people have to start job searching from the location and not necessarily from the dream job. And, um, it's just something to think about for those, for those listening is, you know, like what Brent's talking about is skills to do that. And, you know, it's looking, as you already talked about, you know, looking looking online and looking maybe differently than you would when you're moving into your first stage uh, of finding that first job. It's a different type of career or a different type of job search. Yeah, exactly. You're you can be more limited in some ways, like your location. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, if 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 my wife's family wasn't here, would I be in Michigan? Probably not. I might go somewhere else. But like, that's that's where I'm at. And so I got to make the most of the opportunities here. And, I, you know, I found some good ones and I'm really happy with that. But you're also limited more on your preferences. Like I wanted to kind of work for a smaller company um, coming from a huge 
company of, you know, over a hundred thousand people and tens of thousands of engineers, like I wanted to do something else. So I've kind of limited myself in that way too. I mean, like, okay, like work for a slightly smaller company, maybe get more exposure to different things. So you have, you have different, lots of different criteria that can limit you on that. And, uh, you know, my experience was unique as we had decided to make the move and, and my wife's a teacher. So that kind of put a timeline on our move in terms of school years and things. But the best time to look for a job is when you already have one and you don't have to leave it and quit. So that's that's definitely some advice there is like, you know, if you're thinking of if, if you're thinking you might want to even make a change uh, in a year from now, start looking now to get that list of companies, to get that list of you know preferences for yourself, of what opportunities, even jobs exist out there today, even if they're not out there later, you at least have an understanding because you don't want to go from like, one job to the next job thinking that next job is the job but you find out that it's you know it's not really the best one because you were rushed to find it or you you know limited yourself in different ways that also helps a lot in the negotiation phase because that's kind of a it's kind of a weird time but my grandpa said the 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 person with the most power in negotiation is the person who can walk away (laughs) exactly yeah so like that's that's something to think about so you want to try and be setting yourself up for so that when you're in a negotiation for whatever you can walk away if you want obviously that's the preferred preferred way but um you have some control over that it's not just totally random and it's a good a good piece of advice to start early so that's great so you got in this new product development i think i'd, I'd love to hear about you know we're, we're a little bit over time but i think this is important because product development engineer is i think a big common title for a mechanical engineer so i can you talk a little bit about what that role is from your your perspective and kind of talk about the day-to-day so that people can get familiar with that title. Yeah. So it's definitely different. Like if you're at a big company versus a smaller company, like the roles there can be can be huge um, and your scope of responsibility can be a lot different. But when you're at a, a slightly smaller company that's not tens of thousands of people, uh, product development role can be very hands on. It can go instead of, you know, being part of just one small thing, you might be in charge of the whole engineering for the whole product from, you know, what components go into it, what kind of functionality and performance does it have? Uh, how do you make all that work? You know, prototyping, being hands on, testing things out, um, doing experiments and then combining them all together. Um, it, it also depends a lot on the size of the product. Like I work on, you know, smaller products that you can hold up with one hand. So that means there's there's fewer parts to it and a little bit less complexity than a car or, you know, a piece of huge machinery or something else. And, and, and each company, I would say, is different. So like I did no CAD work at my previous job, never touched CAD because uh, it wasn't in my realm. And now, like, you know, I do a little bit of CAD work, but there's also some CAD specific people. So, you know, I switched and have to flex those muscles a little bit, um, flex about, you know, specking out things like electric motors or, you know, running my own tests and experiments that aren't necessarily as defined when you're in sort of experimental phase. So getting to be a product development engineer, um, depending on what you're working on, what your company and what phase of project you're coming in on can can mean a lot of different things from from prototyping, experimenting to now, you know, validating final designs, reviewing them, making sure that they're they're good to go off to manufacturing. But if it's if if you're looking to get into that part of engineering of designing things and putting stuff together to come up with a final product and not just analysis or testing or whatever, like product development engineer is probably what you want to be looking for. If you want to look back at a look back at a product and say, you know, I I built this, I created this, that's definitely what the product development engineer role is. Yeah, I think in that regard, that's one of the titles of jobs that I think is really pretty accurate. I don't know if too many product development. I don't know. I'm trying to think if um, 
if there are, but, and, but per, I mean, you're developing the product, you're responsible for improving the product, uh, increasing its, its ability to perform to certain performance metrics and other things like that. And so it's, if you're, if you're a product development engineer on a type of product that you're interested in, meaning it has the systems that you're interested in, in Brennan's case, batteries and electronics and things like that, that get you excited. Like that's, that that's going to be uh, a pretty good standard and enjoyable mechanical engineering job, I think. Um, Cause I, I think it, like I said, like, I think it's one of the common quote unquote engineering type work jobs, obviously, right. You need, if you have some product you need to make and it has some mechanical aspect, you're going to need some kind of product mechanical engineer to do product development on it. Um, can you talk a little bit, Brennan, I forgot where this sits in the, the slew of R and D to manufacture, like um, where does the product development engineer sit? And can you talk a little bit about that mindset? You talked a little bit about before thinking about, okay, well you're on the end of the the role as a calibration engineer. Now you want to kind of move up a little bit. So, um, product development engineer is, is not before it's research and development and then product development engineer, I guess, kind of, where does it sit in the scale of product of the product's life cycle? Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely right in the middle and this, this definitely depends on again, what company, what product you're working on. So even at, at GM, we could say I did, you know, I was, I wasn't research and development and I wasn't fully down the line, like manufacturing somewhere in the middle there. But when you're, you're dealing with, uh, having responsibility for, you know, physical parts of the product, it usually lies somewhere in the middle. Someone that already else has done kind of the R and D type work and figured out potential new uh, systems or ways of doing things. And so it's kind of your job to take those, take that knowledge and then incorporate it into actually making a product that you can make and sell. Um, it takes sort of the theoretical, here's a perfect world case, and how do we make it into something that's an actual product? So it, it sits, it can sit um, kind of almost right after that R&D step of, okay, like let's prototype out things of how they could be productionized. So you get a little bit of that, sort of that hands-on, let's just throw some stuff together and you know make sure the whole system works. Okay, now um, how can we tweak this and refine it to make it, make it productionizable? Um, and it can also go down a little bit uh, to the final product testing in a lot of ways, um, or at least in terms of looking at the results to say, okay, someone else ran these tests and maybe come up with the test, but I can look at the results and say, does this meet sort of the, the metrics that we set at the beginning of the development process to make sure we're meeting those and being responsible for that. So again, different companies are going to do that different and they're going to have different responsibilities and scope. But when you're at, when you're a product development engineer on, on at least the smaller products, you get to own a lot of that throughout the process. Um, on bigger products, you might just own one subsystem of that and it's, you know, design and performance and things and how it, and then hand that off where it gets incorporated into a larger system. But usually you're getting to be much more involved with the whole life cycle of the product. Yeah, just to kind of illustrate for people, so I kind of, how I kind of think about it is like you could be like a research and development engineer at the start of the process where it's like we have nothing, figure out what we need. Okay, well, we need an electric motor, we need brushes, and okay, well, I'll hand that to the product development engineer. They're going to say, they're going to figure out exactly what motor we need, exactly the size of the brushes, how it's going to fit into the container, and, and what the pieces are going to look like and the rough cost. Okay, then you can move from there to like manufacturing engineer. It's like, okay, they're they're actually make they they're not changing anything they're just taking it and make and making it and then you can even move after manufacturing to like sales support like application engineers that are out there like helping the customer base understand how to use the product so that's there's a broad range that you can sit in as an engineer um and to your point earlier Brent I'm just trying to emphasize this is that's another decision point for you to mm -hmm. have is where in this cycle 
do you want to sit and what, what is more interesting to you in the same way you're going to decide what industry you're in um, and where you're going to physically be. It's also, okay, where in the product life cycle do I want to be? And I think probably the cool part too, for you, since you probably work on multiple products is you get to be at kind of different points for different products. If it's a new product release, um, could you, cause do you work on, since you're a smaller company, do you get to work on multiple projects? I actually only work on one project at a time, um, okay. being like the main engineering person on that project um, and really devoting a lot of my you know, time and resource and energy to it. But uh, like different companies are going to do that different. Um, yeah. Obviously, like there might be multiple projects that could be totally different on how they structure it. For me, I, I get to work on one project at a time for the most part and, and really be diving in deep on that. Well, that's great. I mean, so I think... That's another thing people listening, you can find jobs to do different thing. Like I think Adam Heinzen again had his Polaris job. He's a product development engineer type typeish work, but he, he worked on multiple products with at different points of their life cycle at the same time. So he, he walks into office on Monday and he might work a couple hours on product that's early and a couple hours on a product that's later in its cycle and do that type of thing. Whereas, you know, you know, maybe a little bit bigger company, which you are, you know, you're just focused on one product. And if you went in then even bigger, there'd be multiple product development engineers for a single product. And you know, that's just another thing to think about. I mean, I don't know. We talk about this like a lot of decision point, but we also want to, I think I want to acknowledge too, that you don't necessarily have the answer to this, right? I mean, meaning like if I were to go and just ask anyone like, Hey, like where in the product life cycle do you want to be? You know, what do you, do you like big company, small company? A lot of people haven't thought about it. Like a lot of people don't necessarily think about it. And we're just, I think, just trying to help provide things that you could think about if you have the opportunity to, because you, sometimes you might not. You might not have the ability to pick between these different things. But I don't know. At least I think it's all part of the journey too. It's like you know yeah. you're not stuck in one job for the rest of your life. Like you can experiment with a few different things. I mean, depending on how you want to do it. If you did a few years here or there, move within the same company and try different things out. Like you might eventually find something. And you know, if you spend throwing out numbers, if you spent ten years experimenting with different jobs to figure out what you wanted, you know, you still got. 10 to 20, however long you want to work to finally do like that one thing you really like. Um, and so don't, yeah, don't think you're stuck in one thing forever. And definitely, I don't know, I would just say, take more focused effort to really think about what you want to do and what factors go into that and try exploring some of it. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably some of the greatest, greatest advice from the show is, you know, try and think about what you want, and then try and run experiments, whatever that means, to see if you like it or not. And, you know, whether that, whether you're an undergrad student doing that or whether you're a five, 10, 15 year person in industry doing that, they're just how, how you run those experiments are, they're just a little different, but I don't know. Cause I, you know, I, I think back to why we started this show and it, it, you know, for me, it's a lot of, I just want people to be as happy as they can in their job and to not settle on a job just thinking that's their only option. Like there's a ton of options and there's a lot of different ways that you could use the knowledge that you listener right now have, you know, and it, it Aiden, if you're not necessarily happy with what you want right now, or you think you could be happier, why, why not try it? I mean, unless you don't have the time to make the change, but if you, you have the time, hopefully the show has given you some ways of looking at it and understanding how you could make that next move. That's really been my big, my biggest reason for wanting to do this is to, to help undergraduate students figure out how to do it. But also for those people that are in industry right now, figure out how do I make a change and what does that look like? Can I make a change? Um, and I think Brennan's, story here is a, a great example of that, um, where he changed industries, he changed in and, and is doing a, a totally different job without a change in credentials. And, uh, I don't know. Yeah. So, I, I would say like that point too, like my experience in product development was very small from where my previous job was to where I'm at now. Like 
I was working with a lot of software and looking at code and testing things out and data analysis. And in my current job, it's much more hands-on and physical. Like, so going into those interviews, when it's the questions of like, you know, tell me about something, you know, you designed and created, I'm like, well, I haven't created or designed anything physical, like in my job, because that wasn't my job. But here's the other skills that I have done and other ways I have done things. And so if you're if you're looking at a job and being like, I really want to do that, but I don't have like the exact requirements, like it's it's less about those requirements than you think and more about uh, more about you, more about how your processes are, how you go about problems and how you think you can apply that to the, the job you're going for. Especially in those roles that we talked about, your current role is where it's not a technically specific thing, right? I mean, it's different when it's like, hey, we need someone to come in who knows C, who can run C all day long and do or whatever, do a very, very specific technical thing. Like that's different. You know, you got, you have to have those skills usually to get those, those jobs. Um, but for the, for the broad market of mechanical engineering or even other discipline engineering jobs, like you, you don't necessarily need to have it. Um, and we might, to be fair, I, I'm thinking about this now, we're a little, we're obviously hugely biased in mechanical engineering. I mean, it, yes. I think it's probably very similar for electrical engineering, but I think you probably defer. It's probably not in civil and those, those might, I don't just, yeah. I just want to acknowledge that this, this information, at least for this episode has been pretty biased towards mechanical engineering. Yeah. Very true. Very good point. So, um, but all right, Brandon. Well, you know, I think we're kind of getting towards the end. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up um, in our time today? I think the one, the one other thing that I've, I've thought about a lot in terms of like jobs and especially in the engineering side is like, how we're evaluated, those dreaded performance reviews and everything about that. Um, because I think as engineers, we tend to think like our work will speak for itself, um, which I, I, I found out uh, is is really not the case in so many ways. And it can lead to a lot of frustration. I think with with people I've talked to um, for you know places I've worked at and things of always feeling like not understanding how processes work of how are we evaluated? You know, we get to the end of the year, people say we did a good job, but that doesn't lead to any like huge tangible change, like no big recognition or bonus or whatever. And you're like, what, what do I do with that information? And so something that I've really been exposed to recently is, is the different theories and models, I guess, of like how we're evaluated as employees. And I think if you haven't thought about it, it's really important to think about it. And, and this comes, uh, and I think this rings true based on some experience I've had, but one, one thing I've learned about recently is called the, the pie model of, I don't know, evaluation or whatever. It's basically performance image uh, and exposure. And we as engineers tend to focus a lot on performance. Like, you know, I do my job well, I meet my, my metrics and my goals and I make great things. Like, obviously I should be rewarded for that, but it leaves out a lot of the other things of the image of how do people see you at work and what are you viewed as and how much exposure do you get to people further up in your company? Like you're not your boss, but your boss's boss. Cause we, we, we forget about the idea that we have to sell ourselves if we want mm-hmm. to, to move up. We think we sold ourselves in the interview. You wanted to hire me. Like, isn't that good enough? I should, that should speak for itself. Like, let me go do what I want. And so this this just happened to me after having a few years of, you know, performance reviews. Like, you met all your goals. You did a great job. Uh, but, you know, like, like, good pat on the back. And I'd be like, okay, well, like, I didn't, I, I didn't get anything special. Like, I wasn't getting much of a raise or anything for this. Like, what, what, what can I do wrong? Or what can I do different? And, you know, the feedback is always like, I don't know. I guess I'll have to think about that from, from my managers. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I'm necessarily supposed to do with that. Um, but then, then I finally got some feedback. It's like, yeah, I think we need to get you more in front of like, you know, my, my manager would say, I think you need to get you more in front of my boss. 
And so it was about being like, yeah, you always have to look one step up from where you're at. And and part of that is because whether we like it or not, we're we're being ranked against our colleagues. You you are graded on a bell curve at work, whether you like it or not. And there are only so many people who are going to get chosen to get that that A plus and the rest of us are going to get put in C range. And that's not going to hurt us, but it's not going to move you forward. So you really just have to pick. And in my mind, we you know, you, you talked about playing games earlier in your career. And in my mind, this is a game where you you have to choose if you're going to play it or not. Like, are you going to be happy doing your, your one job that you're at or making lateral moves and finding what you want? Like, that's totally fine. But that's that's one way you're playing the game. If you want to be someone who moves up to more leadership roles, whether that's managerial or, you know, technical leadership roles, like that's a different game to play that requires getting in front of more people and, you know, being more explicit about your goals and stuff. And I think that's something we miss. Um, and, I, and I'd say that just because having talked to other people and them kind of feeling the same way. And so my my advice to people out there is to really think about, you know, what kind of game are you playing? What kind of exposure are you getting at work? And is that is that what you want to be doing? Um, and where you're at, because there, there are different things you have to think about. Yeah, I would say that I think it's like almost like internal networking um, that mm-hmm. has to be done, but that how, that's tied to your bonus. Because I mean, so I will say the, the thing I think about when you say that, that's largely, I think, big, big business. Um, the game, well, the game is different for every company, but in big business, you know, it's typically, it's typical that they have a thing where, Hey, we can only give one person a high bonus this year, or there's a, there's a distribution. And so when they enact those types of things, like, Hey, the, the, the payout of bonuses has to be in the bell shaped form. Like that instantly means comparison because you have to establish a mean and you have to establish who's above the mean. And that I think happens more easily in big companies because they have a hard question of, Hey, how do we give out bonuses? Um, I think, I don't think there's, that's an easy question to answer if you're in engineering management or HR figuring out how that's going to do that. But, um, so to you, to your example, like if you're trying to figure out how to be above the mean things, but I think it can be different in small companies, um, because they are more in control of their funds, but it can also be worse in that they have less funds to maybe give out as bonuses and stuff. Um, yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's the point I would make too, is, is seeing this from both uh, sides a little bit. Like yeah, there's less, you know, there's less promotion opportunities at small companies because there's less layers and less, uh, you know, less groups and people there. So uh, there's less opportunity there. And yeah, the big companies, like they have to think about that, you know, they may have more money, but they have more employees. So how do you spread that out and stuff? And do it somewhat equitably. And I think that, it's a harder thing. I don't know. One one big gripe I have with the universities right now is it seems like there's a big push to give everyone A's, and they can do that, and really they could do that only at the sacrifice of their own image, and it seems to be tending to go that way. Like a, a how they say a C used to be the average. I don't think that's the case now. There's yeah. no way that a C is an average now. Um, a C is like a failing grade now. It seems like, and so applying that same kind of idea to to bonuses, like you can't, you can't, you can't give like the bottom 10%, nothing like a stay on it, but then give like a bunch of people like huge bonuses. Like that's just not realistic. Like you don't have funds to do that. And so that's just kind of how the system works. And so then uh, I'm trying to think was, I think it was Bill Alcini's episode where we talked about how you got to look at how you view, how the, how the company views you. Right. So imagine you're an engineering manager, two levels up and you have whatever, example, a thousand engineers under you that you don't know any of their names and you're told to, Hey, assign bonuses to all them. Okay. Well, let's just have the managers rank their average mean. And you know, they can pick one person who maybe gets a high bonus, but like if they're better than the average, like, okay, well, but then to your point, like, well, what if, what if they go and like manager one says, well, Brennan, 
I like him, but, but that guy, but they know Brennan and like it, it's, it gets, you have to think about it. Like you're the, like you're the hiring mm-hmm. manager. And that's where that interesting exposure piece comes out from the model that you talked about. Um, and I think that's seen more evidently when you're thinking about it from the business side than your own side, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's kind of the networking, like getting the job. Oh, someone just vouches for you. Even they don't know you technically, they know you're a good person. So like, you know, we'll give you an interview. It's the same sort of thing here. Um, and it's just, I think it's something that you have to be aware of. Like each company might do things different, but, um, you know, from, from my experience, what I've heard from others, like you, you, you are getting ranked against your colleagues, whether you, you like it or not. And, and luckily enough, I think most people don't necessarily view that in a competitive, at least on, on, you know, on, in the engineering side, people I've seen don't see it as a competitive, I have to beat my colleague or anything. They think of it still as a teamwork. Um, but you know, there's still, uh, there's still conversations that you're not a part of where you're all kind of being compared to see who, who comes out on top and, and having, you know, your work, unfortunately, doesn't just speak for itself in these areas. So being aware of, of, of what kind of games are going on and what you want to be a part of, because it, it takes time and energy to, to network with more people in the company to get to know your, your boss's boss and all those types of things. Um, and that can be one more thing, you know, to, to put time and energy into if that's important, then you should definitely be doing that. If it's less important, then then just don't worry about it and just go about doing your job and, and it'll be fine. But not being aware of that can be and then, then getting frustrated later on or, or confused um, can be, I think, something that you, you don't want to have happen. Um, so it's important to be aware of that. And and I think if you have to, like, ask about it, hopefully you're you know, you have a good relationship with your manager where you can get that sort of advice or mentorship from someone else within your company of, you know, how does this work? How can I, you know, how can I set myself up to have the success that I want to have within the company? I think it's great. Yeah, good advice. We haven't really talked much about that, the performance side of it. I think it's it's kind of it's a weird it's a weird side of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I keep trying to not, people always call it a game. Some, like some people that I talked to that they would, they would wear it as a game. And I was, I always hated that. Uh, maybe it is, it can, it can very easily become a game, I guess, in terms of how you think about it and strategy, um, which is unfortunate, but maybe, um, realistic. I don't know. Anyways. Yeah. All right. Well, I think with that, we'll call episode 23 Dunskies. Um, it's a good one. I think, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Self-rated as a good one. <laughs> that episode was pretty good. That was great. Know that, right? um, but yeah, so I think uh, things we want to mention for those listening, um, we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus on the EYC episodes. Brennan and I got some life stuff that we're working on, so we can't we got to devote a little bit less time to EYC, um, at least for the f- foreseeable future, um, while we got some other things that we're trying to accomplish in life. Um, so as with everything that we do, right, we all have to prioritize our time and make decisions on what we want to focus our time on. And I think Brennan and I have been very happy with the amount of time we've been able to dedicate to EYC. And I uh, think we hope to continue to do that at some point. Um, but at least for now, we got to kind of put it on the back burner to accomplish some other life goals. So with that, um, yeah, I'll bid you adieu and we'll hopefully be in talk, be in touch soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engineer Your Career with Troy Bauman and Brennan Timrak. For more information about the show, visit our website at eycpodcast.com. There you can find show notes for each episode and get in touch with Troy and I. If you or someone you know are an engineer with an interesting or even not so interesting career journey and would like to be on the show, go on the website, send us a short bio, and we may just invite you to come on and share your story. And finally, if you want to show your support, please rate, review, like, or subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice.